Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. Bilink corneal cross-linking is the only FDA-approved intervention proven to slow or halt progressive keratoconus to help preserve vision. Upwards of 70% of keratoconus patients present in optometry, and thus optometrists serve a critical role in the early diagnosis and collaborative care of these patients. Please visit www.ilinkexpert.com to locate an iLink physician near you. That's www.ilinkexpert.com. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Geld, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country, sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. Today's guest, San Antonio-based optometrist, Dr. Bobby Sines, lectures extensively on the treatment of glaucoma, keratoconus, latest in dry eye diagnostics, and new innovations in cataract surgery. Dr. Sines is a prolific researcher. His research includes clinical trials in the area of refractive surgery, dry eye, cataract surgery, and the pharmaceutical treatment of glaucoma. Dr. Sines, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. I want to ask you, can we really slow or halt the progression of keratoconus to preserve vision with a, with a, uh, a new procedure called cross-linking? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think that, you know, back in, you know, 20, let's say 2015, if you had a patient who had keratoconus, you know, there was really not much we could do. But thankfully, you know, 2016, when the FDA approved cross-linking, it's really given us the ability to have a treatment to halt or stop the progression of patients who have keratoconus. Now, cross-linking, you know, that's probably one of the top questions we get when we're talking about cross-linking is like, well, well, does it, how many times do you have to do it? Does it work every single time? And I think you have to go back to like, why do patients get keratoconus? And I think that there's this predisposition in which these patients, you know, rub their eyes and that leads to the progression of keratoconus. And in these patients, if you're able to do cross-linking, it's fascinating seeing some of the uh, studies in which a cornea gets cross-linked. Let's talk about like a rot rabbit model where they, where they get cross-linked. And then you look at this cornea afterwards and it looks like a Jolly Rancher. It is like, it's hard. And whereas if you get a cornea of a rabbit and you look at it, it kind of looks like a, we talk about like a gummy lifesaver. And so it really just shows the difference in what keratoconus, if you have a cornea that is able to get cross-linked, and it makes this cornea strong, there is a significantly less chance of this cornea progressing and eventually needing a corneal transplant. So I think to, to wrap all that up, absolutely. Now in, you know, in, in 2021, especially going into 2022, we have great options for these patients who have progressive keratoconus. Explain to the audience what exactly keratoconus is. That's a great question. So keratoconus is, you know, when light comes into the eye, it hits the cornea, then the lens, and it gets focused on the back of the eye. The back of the eye is then what transfers that, you know, through a highway to the brain, and that's how you're able to see. 
So keratoconus is, we focus on that very first structure, which is the cornea. And in keratoconus, these patients whose cornea is normally clear and kind of curved like a basketball, their cornea is weaker. And then they rub their eyes and that cornea thins. And as it thins, it causes this amount of astigmatism. And astigmatism, it got, you know, I think everybody is a little bit concerned about astigmatism here in San Antonio when our Hispanic patient population here is astigmatismo. Uh, they get real nervous and they think, oh gosh, am I going to live? Um, but really, you know, astigmatism is like when you're looking at a light and you're seeing just like a lot of these rays coming off of these lights, uh, that astigmatism in keratoconus is really severe. And it's, astigmatism can be so bad that these patients can actually go you know, blind from it, especially if that cornea becomes too thin, too weak and causes scarring, uh, that can lead to severe vision loss in these keratoconic patients. And what are some of the symptoms that these patients have? Yeah, um, so keratoconus is, is kind of one of those, it doesn't necessarily cause any symptoms like eye pain. It really leads to a vision decrease because of the astigmatism. And so oftentimes early on, these patients are coming in and they're just saying, my, my vision just isn't, isn't sharp enough. Uh, my, my vision, you know, it's just, it's just not as good as it used to be. You know, I had a friend from high school um, who actually ended up having keratoconus and he came in and he was like, man, my vision in my left eye just isn't as good as it used to be. And so typically that's what we see is this, this slow, it's not a fast change of decreased vision. It's this slow change over time. Now, there are certain things that, you know, when you have this vision decrease, there are certain things that you can look for to catch keratoconus earlier. And so typically these patients, you know, that we just talked about eye rubbing, how it makes the cornea weaker and leads to this astigmatism and thinning of the cornea. So eye rubbing is associated with keratoconus. And so any condition that can cause eye rubbing, like let's take, for example, allergies. If somebody has, you know, allergies in their eyes, like my daughter, she's like four years old. And initially when she was born and we started figuring out at one years old that she was like allergic to like bread and like eggs and like pretty much dairy. So it was like, what do we even feed her? But I, she, you could see it in her eyes. Like she would just like rub her eyes. And I was just thinking like, oh my goodness, I hope that is not weakening the cornea. So, so it, it can be associated with things like itchy eyes, for example. So it doesn't mean if you have itchy eyes, you have keratoconus, but if you have decreased vision and you have somebody who has itchy eyes, you're starting to think, okay, maybe we should do some more testing to see if this patient has keratoconus. You talked about that there's possibly a genetic predisposition for it. There's actually genetic testing now for see who's at risk for keratoconus. Do you have any experience with that genetic testing and what's your opinion of it? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, that genetic testing, yeah, we had some, we had some uh, experience with it before COVID. Then once COVID happened, they kind of switched over and did a bunch of COVID testing, which don't, don't blame them. And now it, they're, they're, come, they're making a comeback with regards to this testing. So it, let me give you an example of a patient that we tried it on. So when we were first doing it, um, a patient came in for a LASIK consultation and their parent had had keratoconus. And so they're coming in for LASIK and obviously we would not want to do LASIK on a patient who has keratoconus. And then looking at the scans, her scans looked perfect, okay? But her brother had had LASIK and had had this condition that's called ectasia afterwards or post-LASIK keratoconus. So her brother had LASIK and had a not good outcome because the brother ended up having keratoconus. Well, in her, what we were deciding is, should we do LASIK based on the, that knowledge that we have there? And we did the genetic testing and she came back with a bunch of risk factors for keratoconus. 
And so in her, in her case, instead of doing laser vision correction, something like LASIK, we ended up doing a procedure that's called ICL or implantable columnar lens. Some people call that the implantable contact lens. Where we placed a lens just beneath the surface of her eye to correct her nearsightedness and astigmatism. So I think that that test has a role in patients who are coming in looking to get refractive surgery and have some question marks and a questionable history like this patient that we just described in which it really helped us get to the what we think was the best uh, surgical option for her. Um, and then I think there are some patients who come in who have keratoconus and they want to know, do their kids have any genetic factors? Um, I still think that there's more research to be done on it and just kind of understanding their whole algorithm. But I think overall, this is a great tool that we have in the toolbox for us in looking at keratoconic patients and wanting to know more, who are wanting to know more about their family or who are maybe a, a borderline refractive surgery patient. Wow, that's a great example of how a genetic test could help us. Why can't you do uh, LASIK on keratoconus patients? Oh, why shouldn't you? Yeah, so in keratoconic, keratoconus, we talked about how these patients have weaker corneas and they have thinner corneas. And, and what happens in laser vision correction, these imperfections that these patients have that lead to their nearsightedness, which usually with LASIK or any types of laser vision correction, you're doing laser to remove these imperfections. And in, in patients who have keratoconus, they have a thinner cornea. And so you would not want to laser and basically remove these imperfections because that would make their cornea even more thin. And if you made that cornea more thin, you're gonna have more irregular astigmatism, which eventually could lead to scarring and progression of the keratoconus. Because ultimately, you know, when we're talking about keratoconus, what we know about keratoconus is that it is a progressive disease. It progresses over time. It typically progresses when these patients are younger. And so we would not want to, what we're trying to do and what we're talking about today is stopping the progression. And what we would not want to do is lead to more progression and doing laser vision correction, uh, like for example, LASIK on a keratoconic patient is not something that we'd want to do. There is some research coming out on, on doing, you know, cross-linking and then doing, coming back and doing a procedure that's called topo-guided PRK. Um, but that's a whole nother thing. And, and there's some really good research coming out on that. But, but just for simplicity, we would not want to do LASIK in a keratoconus patient. You mentioned ectasia before. Explain what that is. Mm -hmm. Ectasia means thinning of the cornea. Um, and so I think that, you know, pe people use the word differently. So, so, you know, they might say that keratoconus is an ectasia, meaning keratoconus leads to a thinning of the cornea. Uh, some people might, there, there's different forms. There's pellucid, there's keratoglobus, there's different types of ectasias or thinning of the cornea. Um, there are, you know, patients who have had a history of laser vision correction that you can get ectasia afterwards as well. Um, and it's kind of interesting just seeing some of the new philosophies and the thoughts on quote unquote ectasia. I think we know a lot about keratoconus. And what we're trying to figure out is on these patients who have had laser vision correction, you know, who are these patients who get ectasia or thinning of the cornea after surgery? And what we now know, you know, based on a lot of studies is that these patients who get thinning after laser vision correction typically have the thinning beforehand. And so the question is, how do we identify these patients? Because if you look at it, if you think about ectasia after laser vision correction, it happens, you know, once every you know, one in 10,000, one in 9,000 patients. So it's like, how do you catch that one patient who happens, it happens to them once every 10 years. And how do we catch them? Yeah. 
<laughs> our technology is getting better. Uh, and this kind of just goes back to like, how do we identify early keratoconus? Um, there have been several studies that have looked at like, how do we identify somebody um, that they have keratoconus? Is it increased astigmatism? Is it astigmatism in a certain meridian? Um, ASCRS, so the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Society, like just happened. It just ended yesterday. And there were several papers there talking about how do we diagnose keratoconus early? You know, is it anybody over two diopters of astigmatism? Anytime you see oblique cylinder, anytime you see against the real cylinder. Um, and I think really what we're seeing is that I think we need to be proactive in ordering as, as doctors, right? When we're seeing increased astigmatism, whether that be one eye or two eyes, um, I think you know, we, we need to order more testing. And, and the good thing is we have testing available. You know, we have things like topography and tomography, which can look at the shape because in keratoconic patients, when they have a thinning of the cornea and it leads to that astigmatism, it actually leads to what we call inferior steepening where the cornea is really curved at the bottom. And so the question is, how do we see that the cornea is really curved on the bottom? We have things like topography and we have things like tomography because you don't only get changes on the front of the cornea, as the cornea thins and bulges forward, you actually get changes on the back of the cornea too as well. And when we get these changes on the back of the cornea too as well, there are now diagnostic scans in which we can image the back of the cornea as well. Um, and we've been a really big fan of epithelial thickness mapping. Um, and that's been a really big, that's a new technology that actually maybe most optometrists have in their office because the way that you measure the epithelial thickness mapping is actually with OCT. And so we have the ability, you know, there's a good amount of doctors who have OCTs in their office. Maybe they haven't bought a topographer yet, but they have an OCT and they can actually image the cornea. And what you'll see is and somebody who has keratoconus, so let's say their cornea is now a cone, what you'll see is the epithelium compensates for the stroma. And so if you look at the apex of the cone, you'll actually get thinning of the epithelium or the apex of the conus. And so it's becoming really nice because if you have a, like an instrument, like, you know, we have the, the Cirrus, you know, the 500, um, and it has the ability to print the pachymetry and also the epithelial thickness mapping. So if we did not have a topographer in our office, we could see that the cornea is, let's say 450 and that we have a thinning of the epithelium and that can help you diagnose keratoconus if you do not have a topographer or a tomographer in your office. Dan Reinstein has done some research in this area and he talks about the donut pattern. Can you explain that with, yeah. with the epithelial thinning in OCT? Yeah, it's so yeah, Dan, Dan Reinstein's really big in this because what, he has been a big believer in, in that this is the earliest indicator somebody has keratoconus. And so it's almost like when you look at a, a topography image or a tomography image, you know, typically we think about that as seeing it as green overall. Sometimes you see like a, the bow tie pattern on the cornea and that just shows us astigmatism. And in keratoconus, what we know on topography is that we get inferior steepening. So you get like a red circle on the bottom usually. Right? You can, it can be in different areas, but most, most of the time it's on the bottom and you see a red circle on the bottom. We, we think about that as inferior steepening. On the epithelial thickness mapping, it's actually really easy. It matches that. So he calls it the donut pattern, but it's really just a spot on the, epithel the epithelium that's thin over the apex of the cone. So with, in topography, you get inferior steepening, which is a circle. In the epithelial thickness mapping, you also get a circle on the bottom. 
What's just interesting is that the epithelium is thicker around the outside and thinner in the middle. And so he calls that a donut pattern. But just like how you see in, in topography, inferior steepening on the topography, you just see an inferior circle on the epithelial thickness mapping. Explain topography. Optometrists use this a lot. How can mm -hmm. that help us with diagnosis of keratoconus and other types of corneal disease? Yeah, topography is looking at the front shape of the cornea. And so there are, there are a lot of conditions, really, on the front of the eye, in which the front of the eye can have a lot of astigmatism, it can have a regular astigmatism, it can have bumps on it, it can have ridges on it, um, it can have scars, you know, from contact lenses. I mean, there's so many different things of bumps and ridges and scars and on the front of the eye and topography helps to take a map. Because as doctors, when somebody comes in, they're, they're coming in usually to say like, I have decreased vision. Why do I have decreased vision? And so this gives us the ability to take a shape, a scan of the front of the eye and look at the shape of the front of the eye. And what we're looking for is regularity. Because if we see that the front of the eye is regular, then we have to say, okay, well, the decreased vision is coming from somewhere else. So let's go look for that other place of decreased vision. And so if we see that there's irregularities, you know, we see some steepening, like it's really curved or some flattening, that then we know could potentially lead to decreased vision. And so in the case of keratoconus, we know that it causes inferior steepening and having a topographer is really, really helpful because sometimes you have patients who have keratoconus and they have a prescription of you know, minus two, minus two axis 180, which basically is like a normal prescription. But then you do the topographer and you're like, oh my goodness, they have keratoconus. And this is why maybe they're 2020 minus or, you know, so, so having the ability to look at the front shape of the eye is really helpful because keratoconus early on changes the shape of the front of the eye. And how about topography or the pentacam? Yes. What does that tell us? How does that help us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the Pentacam is, is nice because now what we're doing is not only taking a, a picture of the front shape of the eye, it's taking a picture of the back part of the eye. So there are conditions that can cause, you keep hearing me say inferior steepening, inferior steepening. Dry eye can cause inferior steepening. Contact lenses can cause inferior steepening. And so the question is, when you see inferior steepening, how do you know that it's keratoconus? And we're getting next level here, but how do you know whether it's keratoconus or something like dry eye? or something like contact lenses. We had a patient who was referred into our clinic for cross-linking, and what we told the patient to do was stay out of their contacts. Well, when they stayed out of their contacts, they came in and their cornea looked normal. And so when we're talking about that, that's an, e that's an easier case, right? When we start getting to the higher level cases, the level of complexity, sometimes these patients come, come in and they have inferior steepening, right? And so then the question becomes like, is this keratoconus on these early patients? And having the ability of something like a pinnacam allows us the ability to image the back part of the cornea, which in keratoconus, we know that as it gets weaker, it bulges forward. So on the back, you get this thing that's called posterior float. Okay, so when we get to tomography, which is Im now imaging the front and the back of the cornea, you have now the ability with tomography to image the back of the cornea, and you'll see that the posterior is also coming forward, and that's called posterior float. And so if you see inferior steepening and posterior float, okay, we think this is probably keratoconus versus if we see inferior steepening and no posterior flow, okay, maybe this is something more like dry eye. And so tomography not only is good for the initial diagnosis of keratoconus, it's also really helpful. It has some special uh, sauce in there, some special algorithms on how to identify progression of keratoconus too as well. 
Um, and so there's the Bell and Ambrosio, there's some different software that just allows us to then track teratoconic patients over time. Because the question is, if you're progressing, then we're gonna wanna do cross-linking. And so the question is, how do we pick up the earliest signs? Like once we've made the diagnosis, the second question is, how do we pick up the earliest signs of progression? And you can do that with looking at things like their glasses prescription, but you can also do that with looking at, you know, things like the pen and cam and being able to just identify these small changes. You mentioned before contact lens overwear, uh, warping the cornea. Can you talk to the contact lens patients out there about what you feel may be the best type of contact, best way of wearing contacts? Is it single use, two week, uh, one month? What's the best way to try to prevent this overwear syndrome? Yeah, Kara, that's a good question. Now, I'll tell you, like in our practice setting, we um, are like a referral center. And so we do like a LASIK surgery, cataract surgery, obviously cross-linking. Um, as an optometrist, I've nev actually never prescribed glasses or contacts in my life. Um, and so I, I wouldn't really be able to talk to, to you about the uh, best type of contact that's out there. I will tell you this, I usually see the people that have problems. They're the ones that get referred into our clinic. And I will tell you, no doubt about it, the people who come into our clinic because they have a contact lens you know, infection. So they have a bacteria that was in their contact lens and now it's on their eye and it's infecting their eye. Those patients like who are getting referred in, they have to do special antibiotics and get special culturing of their eye. All, almost all the time, either number one, are sleeping in their contact lenses or number two, cleaned their contact lens with like, a, with like water. Or I don't know if you saw, I, I saw last night on the Olympics that there was the, Gosh, I, I don't remember what sport she was in, but the, the German player, maybe it was like Taekwondo, her contact lens fell out and she licked it and then put her contact lens back in. And I was like, oh no, like the, 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 those are the types of patients who come in and we have to treat their infection. And um, I don't know, I feel like sleeping in contact lenses is kind of like driving without a seatbelt. Like just, just be careful. And honestly, if you, if you want to just be able to see all the time, you should consider refractive surgery because there's really good options with LASIK, Smile LASIK, the ICL procedure that I was talking about uh, that, that just can, can get you out of a sticky situation. Well, we, and we talked a lot about that with Dr. Ibeck. So refer to that podcast if you want to find out all the different types of refractive surgery. So when we look at the cornea with somebody with keratoconus, what are some of the signs that the doctor will see what kind of changes in the cornea are we, uh, are we noticing? Yeah, so I think that there, there are a lot of things. I think like as a doctor, if you're, if you're coming into a room and you're, you're suspecting keratoconus, the question is like, well, when do I suspect keratoconus? So I think if you see any history of eye rubbing, if you see any history of allergies, I'm thinking, okay, keratoconus might be here. So like, I'm, I'm just thinking about that. But as you go into the room, if you see a patient who has a lot of astigmatism, Sometimes patients will, you know, doctors will ask like, hey, can this patient get, you know, LASIK if they're a Plano minus six? And the first question should be like, do they have keratoconus? So if you see astigmatism, increasing astigmatism, asymmetric astigmatism, anything about astigmatism would, would be, okay, keratoconus is coming up higher. And then as you get to see that patient, whether you're doing retinoscopy, which is where you shine a light in the patient's eye to like get an idea of what their prescription is, um, or you're getting into actually doing which is better one or two, and you're seeing again that we just know that from doing this so often is if you're doing which is better one or two and the patient is really struggling, you know, we should be considering is this, you know, do, do, is this keratoconus? 
Do they have any of these things that we just talked about? And then if we have done our exam and we're looking at the cornea, we can, there are some early signs in keratoconus, right? Keratoconus can lead to scarring later on and that, that's easy to catch. The question is, how do you catch it early? And there are vogue strides, so little lines that you see on the back of the cornea. And if you're gonna see that, you need to do high illumination, high magnification. So lots of light, very magnified at the microscope when you're looking at the eye and you're looking for these little lines on the back of the cornea. I kind of think about it like the first time you see neo NVI or neovascularization of the iris, which can happen in diabetes, right? It looks like just one pinpoint dot on the iris and you like see it for the first time and you're like, I just, I just caught that. Um, it's kind of like that with keratoconus. When you see these lines, sometimes you just see like one or two or three lines and you're like, oh, that's there. And now you know to order more testing. Um, so there are some different things that you can pick up on the cornea, but you know, I, I would say overall, it's, it's really before you even look at the eye, you should be suspicious for keratoconus. And I think that's how we're going to help to identify more patients um, who are potential candidates for cross-linking. And if we see against the rule of stigmatism in a young person, is that a tip yeah. off? Yeah, I would say that I, I think that, yes, against the rule, oblique astigmatism too as well. That's what the paper at ASCRS talked about was looking at really when you have oblique astigmatism, um, when you have against the rule astigmatism or any of the quadrants greater than two diopters, that's what they talked about is like these patients, we should be suspicious for, um, for keratoconus. Because I think there's a lot coming out right now in myopia progression. And so I think it's gonna be really interesting as we become more hyper aware of myopia progression it's like, are we going to fit these patients who are progressing in myopia and progressing in astigmatism? Are we going to go straight to myopia control? And I would just say that we need to be thinking like, does this patient have keratoconus? No? Okay, now they can go into myopia control. You talk about the one, two, three rule, mm -hmm. three diopters of astigmatism. Explain that. Yeah, I just try to make it easy. I feel like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big acronym person. I'm a big, uh, let's make this as easy as possible. Um, and so the, the three, yeah, the three doctors of a stick. So one, two, three, basically the three dot, anybody with, uh, th uh, maybe hmm, I'm trying to think about what we should do based on this past paper. Um, I would say probably the one, two, three rule should be, um, one line of decreased vision, meaning that if you have somebody who's not 2020, they should be, they should be looked at. They should, we should do a topography. We should just do it. It's a quick, easy scan. It takes like if you have just a topographer, it takes like five seconds to take the scan. It's worth it. Uh, two would be, let's say, two lines or uh, two doctors or more of astigmatism, um, whether that be in one eye or both eyes. And then three would be three lines on the back of the cornea, and that's talking about the Vogue stride. So one line of decreased vision, two doctors of astigmatism, and three lines on the back of the cornea. See any of those, we should be doing some testing to see, does this patient have keratoconus? So what is the age group that we should be concerned about keratoconus? Is it just young people or can people older get it or can, they may already have it? Yeah. Uh, and what's the prevalence? How, how, how common is it? It's a good question. So I think about, you know, I think that the general public is more familiar with cataracts, macular degeneration, and glaucoma, which we know happen in patients who are wiser in age let's say greater than 60, right, ballpark. Keratoconus is one on the opposite end of the spectrum, where typically it's in the puberty years that these patients are showing up with increased astigmatism. 
And so I would say that if we think about glaucoma, macular degeneration, cataract screener in 60, not saying that it can't happen early, we should be thinking of keratoconus happening in, you know, typically first showing up, hopefully our goal is to catch, catch it under 21, okay, maybe under 25. Um, as far as like when we, there, there, there is one case report in the literature of a four-year-old patient being diagnosed with keratoconus and getting cross-linked. And so it can show up really early, but I would say typically if you graduate eye doctor school, you're thinking about keratoconus as a condition that happens between like 16 and 25. So I would say that we think about it in their teens to early 20s. Um, and that paper that showed the four-year-old for me was eye-opening because I was like, wow, um, it can happen as early as four years old. Now the prevalence is there have been some studies that have shown it can be you know, one in 2000 was probably the earliest paper that most people know about. Um, it's been interesting though. I mean, there are some, you know, that paper in Australia that showed one out of 81. Um, and I think that as we become more proficient in diagnosing keratoconus earlier, we're gonna see that that prevalence is gonna be closer to the one in 81 rather than the one in 2000. There was a, there was a paper that came out out of Europe um, it was in the beginning Q1 of 2020. And they looked at all of the patients newly diagnosed with keratoconus. Because in 2020, like we have great technology. And despite all of this technology, these patients that were being diagnosed for the first time with keratoconus were all still late. So it's like, we're still catching keratoconus too late. And so I think if, if we're able to be more suspicious earlier on and we order more testing, we're gonna be able to catch these patients earlier. I think the whole key is we want to try to prevent people from needing corneal transplants. So we want to catch keratoconus as soon as possible so they could be cross-linked. Who is most likely to progress? What are the age groups? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you bring up a good point. It's like, why are, the, why are we even talking about cross-linking and why are we trying to educate on cross-linking is because we're trying to avoid corneal transplants. So if you think about your 16-year-old child like having keratoconus and it progressing fast, because that's, that's what we know is there have been, you know, I think, you know, one study that showed patients under the age of 21 had a 90, it was like 90% chance of progression. And that's like, and that, that wasn't a long study. That was a shorter study. So if you catch anybody with keratoconus re really under the age of 21, you could just be thinking, you know, this patient, 90% chance of them progressing over a year. So you're watching that patient more closely. And it's kind of like for eye doctors, I try to relate keratoconus to glaucoma. It's like, you know, when you have somebody who has all these risk factors and has an eye pressure of like 42, and it's the first time you're seeing them, you're going to watch them more closely. When you see a young keratoconic patient, so you see somebody under the age of 21, you should be watching them like a hawk because if they progress and if they continue to progress, then they're gonna end up being 45 with a prescription of like minus 24, minus six. Glasses and contacts aren't gonna help them. They're gonna to have to walk around in specialty contact lenses all the time. When they take off their contact lenses, they're not gonna be able to see anything. They're only gonna be able to function with their specialty contact lenses, but then they can have scarring. Then they might need a corneal transplant, which is where we basically take a cadaver, somebody who's passed away and take a cornea from them and put it on this patient who's had scarring. And it's like, we would just rather avoid all of that and, and just do a simple procedure, which is cross-linking, 
to make that cornea strong like a Jolly Rancher, tell them not to rub their eyes. And then that way they have the ability to function, you know, into their 20s, into their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And if you look at the research, it's actually quite interesting that, you know, we learn that younger um, patients progress, they're, they're, they, they can progress. And we kind of learn that once somebody gets into their 30s and 40s, like they're fine, 50s even. And it's interesting that these patients still in their 30s and 40s and 50s or even 60s, like if you continue to rub your eyes and make your eyes weaker, you can still progress. And so we still have to watch those patients too as well. You know, it's interesting because there's, lately there's been a number of famous people who have come forward and said that they have keratoconus, such as uh, baseball player, Tommy Pham. I'm a big baseball fan. Uh, everyone knows about Steph Curry and the actor Mandy Patankin. And, you know, I don't know if Steph Curry and Tommy Pham wear contacts or they have had cross-linking, but if they would have caught it earlier, it might've been a little easier for them to play their sports and for an actor to read their lines and do their job. Yeah, I just, you bring up, a, like, I, I love talking about Tommy Pham because Tom, I'm a big Cubs fan and obviously Tommy Pham played for the Cardinals. And, um, you know, obviously I was, you know, not a big Cardinals fan. But I'm a big fan of Tommy Pham and his story because if you look at him, he's wearing specialty contact lenses and he has backup specialty contact lenses in his back pocket if you look at him when he's playing. And I think that's so, so interesting. Steph Curry too, he's been fit in specialty lenses and there was a big story on him. Like, I don't know how he was able to shoot so good. I mean, we go back and we talk about what's keratoconus when you look at a light and you see all these light rays. Could you imagine looking at a basketball hoop with, and seeing potentially even two basketball hoops and Steph Curry is somehow able to shoot the way he's able to shoot unreal right and now he gets fit in specialty lenses and then his shooting percentage goes up even higher um I, yeah and it, it is interesting if Steph Curry and fam could have got cross-linked earlier and they did not have all this increased astigmatism that led for their need to wear specialty lenses like then where would they have been uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about them. It's crazy that Tommy Pham could hit a hundred mile an hour fastball with keratoconus and wearing these specialty contact lenses. That's, he's some kind of athlete. Yes. And, and not even like, I, I think there was, a, I don't know what he's wearing right now, but he was, he was not wearing scleral lenses. So these contact lenses, they would pop out and he just put one back in. I think it's just crazy. It's just amazing. So take us through the procedure of keratoconus. Now we know there's one uh, type of procedure that's FDA approved. Mm -hmm. Talk about the advantages of using a procedure that's FDA approved. I know there are sometimes people do off-label non-FDA approved and there's other countries that are doing different types of techniques. So tell us about that part first and then take us through the procedure, how it works and uh, how safe it is and, and the research and how effective is it? Okay, yeah. So cross-linking, you know, number one, the, the, the only FDA-approved option right now is what we call epi-off cross-linking. So in the cornea, if we go back to the cornea, which is the front layer of the eye, the epithelium is like an epithelial skin layer. Skin cells, you know, slough off, they grow, they slough off. Our top layer does the same thing. It grows, it sloughs off. We don't even know that it's happening. But it's the middle layer of the cornea, which is called the stroma, which is in keratoconus that's that's the weaker structure. And so in these patients, what we're trying to do is we're trying to cross-link the stroma. Because if we cross-link the epithelium, 
that would be great, but then it would slough off. And so the way that you cross-link the stroma and what is even cross-linking is you're basically putting vitamins and UV light. It's almost like when you go to the dentist and you do, they do that blue light thing and they have that orange filter, right? That is cross-linking. That is making your tooth strong. So we can do the same thing on the eye. Now, the thing is, you know, when you do your tooth, you can just have access straight to your tooth. In your cornea, you have to remove those skin layer cells so that you can get enough vitamins and UV light to make the cornea stronger. Some people have tried doing what's called FBON cross-linking in which you basically put drops and you put cross-linking. And the question is, will the drops penetrate past the epithelium skin layer into the stroma? And what is the effect of it? Like how good does it work? And in the US right now, the only way to get epithelial on cross-linking is part of a study. Some people are doing that and that's unapproved cross-linking. You gotta be careful there. Um, and also insurance doesn't cover it too as well. So if, if you want a procedure that's FDA approved and your insurance will cover it, if you can show progression, it's like no doubt EpiOff is the way to go. Outside the United States, EpiOff is still the gold standard. Like they, outside the United States, they do EpiOn, EpiOff. And the one that works the best is still EpiOff. So if you want something that works, boom, EpiOff is the way to go. Now, that, let's talk a little bit more about the procedure and then we get into the, the, the safety there and the results. What we're doing is I kind of talked about it is basically you're removing the skin layer cells on the top of the cornea. And once you remove the skin cells, then you're putting drops in and you put drops in like every two minutes. And so that first part of just getting the vitamins soaking into the cornea takes about 30 minutes. And that's riboflavin drops. That's riboflavin drops. Mm -hmm. So those riboflavin drops, the vitamins are soaking into the cornea. And then after 30 minutes, once you know that the cornea is now soaked, you now put UV light and this UV light, that's what's making the cornea stronger. And that takes about 30 minutes. So right now this procedure, it's the longest procedure we have in our clinic. It takes an hour. Um, and that's, so you're, you're basically in there, you have some headphones, you're listening to music. The procedure doesn't hurt because we give you numbing drops throughout the whole procedure. And then you go home and you have a, you know, you have a special contact lens on to protect the front part of your eye. You're doing some antibiotic and some steroid drops. And we know cross-linking works. Um, there have been several long-term studies on even epi, on epi off cross-linking that have showed like 10 years results and none of these patients needing corneal transplants. Um, and the FDA clinical studies, if you saw the group that did not get cross-linking, they continued to progress. They continued to get the inferior steepening, the astigmatism. They continued to get thinner corneas, where the group that had cross-linking, their cornea was strong, and so they did not progress. And in fact, actually flattened out a little bit, which was encouraging to see. So the short-term, the FDA study, the long-term data outside the United States, I always, this, I mean, it's the reason why I, I always say, you know, if my daughter had cross-linking, I mean, if my daughter had keratoconus, she would get cross-linked yesterday. The data is just, is just good. Um, there are, you know, let's, anytime you talk about a procedure, people want to know, you know, what are the side effects? And really, you know, in the FDA clinical study, I would say that in a small percentage of patients, you know, some of these patients had like a, a haze on the cornea and typically the haze after cross-linking, not visually significant. Um, but that was reported in the, in the study. Um, most patients that just gets better over time. And, and what you have to know is after cross-linking, the cornea is going to continue to flatten, you know, six months out to a year, even some studies have shown out to 36 months. And it's a, the results have been impressive short-term and long-term with cross-linking. 
And one of the key things that you said is that no transplants. Right. Anybody that's had cross-linking, there wasn't one person that needed a transplant. In your uh, experience, because I know you guys do a lot of cross-linking there, have you seen anybody who was cross-linked that still went on to need a transplant? We haven't had anybody. Um, I, we have not had anybody yet that we've done cross-linking that's gone on to need a transplant. So when you do the cross-linking, uh, you take about, was about 10 millimeters of the epithelium off? Eight to we, 10 millimeters? Uh, we have, obviously, so anytime you take the epithelial skin layer, afterwards, that patient's going to be uncomfortable while that skin layer cells comes off. It's almost like having a scratch. If you get a scratch, it's going to hurt, right? Um, and so we have actually made a smaller um, zone of where we take the skin cells off. And that smaller zone, what we've seen is the drops still go through and then spread out. And so that's really helped us with regards to the visual, the visual recovery, and also just overall recovery in these patients. And how many millimeters would you say the one that you're making now is? Oh, three to four. Oh, wow, that's that's really something. Now, sometimes the stroma, the middle of the cornea, isn't thick. We have to get it over 400 microns. Yes. What's the chemical uh, that we could use or? or the drug that we could use to, to make it thicker so we could do the procedure. Yeah, that's a good, so I think everybody always wants to know like who's a candidate for cross-linking? Who's a candidate for LASIK? Who's a candidate for cataract surgery? Who's a candidate for X surgery? And who's a candidate for ICL? And, and I think that just like in LASIK where you're looking and seeing like what's the corneal thickness and what's the prescription, with keratoconus, thankfully it's easier. And really what you're looking at is what is the corneal thickness. So in the FDA clinical study, you basically, when you were gonna apply the UV light, you needed that cornea to be about 400 microns. And so if I have keratoconus, I have a thinner cornea, and let's say I have a 350 micron cornea. And then my, my epithelium, which is normally 50 microns, it's gonna be thinner because of my, I have keratoconus, so it's gonna be 30 microns. So let's say now I have three, so I remove the epithelial skin layer cells. I used to have 350, now I have 320. So I have 320 microns. So I'm gonna be putting in the drops. Thankfully, there is a different type of drop that basically draws in this water into the cornea and makes it swell. And you can typically swell it about 100 microns. And so you can take somebody who's you know 320 and you can swell them to 400 microns. One thing that we've done too as well is that usually when we put the eye drops in during that loading dose of 30 minutes where we're just putting the vitamin eye drops in, uh, some, what we've seen is that if you keep their eyes open, it can dry out their eye, which then can dry out their cornea and thin the cornea. So we actually don't even use the lid holder anymore. We just have them blink and we're having them put artificial tears in. And that's helped us get to that 400 micron number. Now, there are people who, uh, don't believe in this 400 micron number. We should just throw it out there. And also there was an interesting uh, study published in JCRS where they actually looked at, well, instead of applying the light for 30 minutes, what we could do is just apply the light for a shorter amount of time. And that article, I just saw a video on this last week where what they're actually doing is they're changing the amount of time that they're applying the UV light based on how thick or thin the cornea is. And I was reading that last week and I was getting really excited because maybe there was somebody in the past who doctors have said, oh man, I don't know if we can do cross-linking because of how thin their cornea is. And this potentially could be a solution 
to still do some cross-linking in those patients. So after you remove the epithelium, we have to heal it. Uh, do you apply a contact lens to help heal the, lens, the epithelium so the patient is mm -hmm. more comfortable in, in the uh, recovery period? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we, uh, we uh, put a bandage contact lens on and I'm kind of smiling because I was telling my wife, you know, right now with the Olympics going on, we've been watching some men's soccer and some women's soccer. And it's just interesting. If you see a men's soccer player get fouled, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, and they're on the floor for uh, quite a while. And the women, like, they get like, cur like drop kicked in the back and they're just like up and going. And I was kind of smiling when you were when you were talking about like the recovery after crosslinking because you know definitely you want to set the expectations that you know after crosslinking while those skin the epithelial skin layer comes back over it's going to be uncomfortable for a few days um, and it's just kind of interesting setting expectations for the men and the women can be a little bit different and Kerry you maybe you have a good pain tolerance but I know my pain tolerance isn't good so uh, the the we got to set the pain the expectations for the the males and the females in our clinic. I have to admit, uh, in my office, it's always the men that are, are take pain a lot less than the women. The women are much tougher than the men. And uh, it just might be my experience. I don't know, but that's usually what I find. And the yeah. number of people who have fainted over the years from just putting a contact lens, which hasn't happened, thank God, in a very long time. It's always men. It was never a female. Yep. So uh, yep. what, can, what can I say? <laughs> so... Uh, how long does it take? You do one eye, you cross-link, and of course you have to apply the contact and the eye's a little blurry. And sometimes first it could, it could actually get worse before it starts flattening, it could get steeper and then start mm -hmm. to flatten and could flatten up to 36 months. When can, you, when can you do the second eye? Yeah, so we used to say like, we'll do one eye and then we'll wait three months to do the other eye. But there was a study that was published that showed you know 25% of people progressed while waiting three months. And so that's really changed our philosophy. So it used to be like three months and then we used to do six weeks. And now it's like, let's do the first eye and let's get that epithelium healed. And once it's healed, let's move to the other eye. Because really once the epithelium is healed, that vision recovery is gonna be better and they can function. So we just need them, we want them to have one functioning eye during this process. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had safe for you to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with safe for you. And most importantly, the reason why I buy safe for you is because it's safe for me and you.